All right, well, before we get started today, I'd like to go ahead and start off by reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I'll read verses 1 through 7. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we'll read together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Well, Paul gives us a great introduction there in Ephesians, and we're, most of us, probably very familiar with that passage, but it'll continue to come into play today as we walk through the final chapter of our study that we've been doing in the book, Divine Blessing and the Fullness of Life in the Presence of God by William Osborne. So for those of you who've been following along, we have been walking through this book for a couple of months now, and we have reached the final chapter, chapter 5. And as we get to the final chapter of the book, the author um, transitions from looking at where we were previously, looking at the concept of blessing or the topic of blessing in the Bible um, in the past and the present. He shifts his focus to future blessings. And so if you recall... We've been going through these short studies on biblical theology. We've covered several now. We've gone through, some of them were the serpent and serpent slayer, um, redemptive reversals, and now we're talking about divine blessings. And in each of these, I think you probably will have picked up a pattern. You know, we essentially start out at the beginning of Scripture, at creation, and we take each of these topics that we're focused on and we look at what God has done throughout history and throughout Scripture um, with regard to this topic, starting with creation and then working our way through all of redemptive history, through the fall, through redemption, and then ultimately consummation. And so this book is no exception. When we get to the last chapter, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that now the focus is the consummation and what can we learn from Scripture about the way that God blesses his people when we look at his people's hope for those future blessings. And um, I wanted to point out, you know, I I think most of you were here uh, for the conference the past couple of days. Um, It was a a time of really great teaching. And, you know, what we saw there even in the conference, talking about the various ways that God's dealt with his people in covenants, you know, follows a similar pattern. You know, we start out, Um, with creation and and work our way through redemptive history. And something that Osborne brings out in his book um, that I think we'll see here clearly, uh, actually our brother Samuel Renahan helped uh, lay out for us also in a really helpful way. So if you didn't catch the lectures, I'd definitely recommend you go back and listen to them. But uh, what our brother uh, pointed out in one of his early talks was that 
you know, as we read here in Ephesians, God has decreed the end from the beginning. God has decreed all that will come to pass, including the consummation, including the return of Christ and the uh, fulfillment and the full establishment of his eternal kingdom. Um, God has decreed all of that from the beginning, as we saw here in Ephesians. Uh, This is part of the covenant of redemption as well. And so something to keep in mind is that you know, God has not only decreed the end from the beginning, but God has decreed each and every step in the process along the way and designed all of redemptive history ultimately to achieve that end that he decreed from the beginning. So God has decreed all things that come to pass, but he's also designed all things that come to pass to achieve the ultimate objective, which is God's glory in the consummation of his kingdom. So that's, that's the end goal that we're headed toward. And in our study today, as I mentioned, since we're in the last chapter of the book, that's where our focus is going to be, is that end goal, that end objective uh, that we're looking forward to. Uh, the title of the chapter, chapter 5, is Eternal Blessings. And as the title suggests, the chapter is focused primarily on this hope that God's people have of spending eternity with God in his presence. This is often what we refer to as the Christian's eschatological hope, right? It's the hope that Christians have as we look forward to the end of the age where Christ will return to usher in what scripture refers to as the age to come. And this concept of the eschaton or the end of the present age, you know, the last things, uh, and the ushering in of the age to come, it's one that we find throughout Scripture, and it represents the end of the gospel narrative, as we've talked about, you know, that narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and then finally a future recreation and consummation. We look forward to this age to come when Christ will return And there will be a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, and where Christ's kingdom that he inaugurated when he came to earth the first time will be fully consummated and established at his second coming. Now we read about this age to come in a number of places uh, in scripture. We see in Luke chapter 18, verses 29 and 30, um, it reads, and he said to them, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So you already see that language being used in this time and the age to come. And in the age to come, we have an an eternal inheritance to look forward to, that being eternal life. In Ephesians chapter 1, where we just were, but skipping down to verse 15, we read a little bit longer passage here, but we see the same concept being brought out. Starting in verse 15 there, we read, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so again, we see these concepts of this age, this present evil age as it's referred to elsewhere in scripture, and then the age to come. And so as we walk through this chapter, we'll focus on this hope that we have in the blessings of the age to come, where we'll be glorified by God, where all sin will be removed, and where we will experience the greatest blessing imaginable, which is being in the presence of Creator God, Almighty God himself. The author begins the chapter by relating an experience he had when he was a teenager. I found it pretty amusing. He said he was 15 years old and his parents bought him a used truck and so being 15 not 16 he wasn't old enough yet to drive the truck. Uh, So he described his days he said he would sit in the truck in the garage listening to music and just anticipating the day when he would finally be able to go cruise around in his truck. I thought this was a good uh, example because a lot of us could probably relate to something similar, you know, in the, in the truck or the car, jamming and just waiting for that day when you can get on down the road, you know, freedom, you finally get to, to have your own vehicle and move around. Um, but the point that he's drawing out here is that he describes how he actually hoped and prayed that nothing would happen to him before he turned 16 and could go drive his truck uh, because he couldn't imagine missing out on, you know, the the wonderful blessing of having this freedom of driving around, probably breaking the speed limit and, you know, having the music cranked up loud. Now, uh, the point that the author's making here is that his mindset was such that he was more excited about the vehicle and the freedom and the fun that it represented to him than he was about the greater blessing of being in the presence of God in eternity. And it's a helpful illustration because after all, we've, we've all been in similar situations. If we really were honest with ourselves and thought back in the past, maybe even the very recent past, um, we've all been enamored with temporal blessings. Um, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings God has given us in our lives, but we have to maintain the right perspective that these blessings don't even compare to the blessings that we will enjoy in God's presence in eternity. Um, You know, there's examples we could probably think of. It could be a young man who desires a wife or a young woman who desires a husband and prays that the Lord would not allow them to die before they get to enjoy the blessing of marriage. Or it could be a young parent who looks at their children growing up and has great joy as they watch them growing and maturing and you know, selfishly desires that the Lord will not come before they are able to see their children grow to be adults and 
they're able to hold their grandchildren and, and spend time with grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren. You know, again, these aren't bad things. These aren't bad desires to have. The point that the author is getting at is that we have to keep the right perspective. These are great blessings, but the blessings that we have to look forward to in spending eternity with Christ are far, far greater than anything that we could imagine in this life. Now, as we talked about before, uh, Jesus and his disciples taught that the kingdom of God was inaugurated in Christ's first coming, and at the same time, we're waiting for its fullness. That's a good way of thinking about it, is we're, we're waiting for that fullness of the kingdom to come, and that is something that gives us great hope. Now, from the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry, uh, we see him proclaiming that the kingdom is at hand, right? In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus comes proclaiming the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is one of his you know, first messages that he brings. Um, Christ has established his kingdom already, and yet we know that it will not be fully consummated until he returns in glory. In the meantime, as we wait for his return, we've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment or a guarantee of the blessings to come. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, going back a couple of verses from where we were before, going back to the verses 13 and 14, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit that's been poured out into our hearts is a guarantee of that future blessing to come, that eternal inheritance that we will enjoy. In Romans chapter 8, Paul uses an agricultural analogy when he refers to the Holy Spirit as a first fruit. Of course, as someone who grew up on a farm, I always love the agricultural analogies because, you know, Paul's bringing it down to my level where I can really understand what he's talking about. But this is one that all of us can understand, right? Anyone who's ever watched anything grow um, knows what he's talking about. He describes the Holy Spirit as a first fruit, which means that the presence of the Holy Spirit in believers is already a blessing, but it indicates to them that there's much more to come, right? Just like you see those first fruits on the vine or the first um, heads of grain sprouting on a crop, you know, that's an indication of what's coming. It it gives you an idea of what is to come, and what is to come is much greater than what is now. So that's the analogy he uses there. But the point that he's making and that he's going to expand on throughout the chapter is that the Holy Spirit is what gives us hope. Now, the Holy Spirit working within us is what gives us our hope for these future blessings and also gives us assurance that those blessings will come. He's described as a guarantee, literally a down payment in Scripture. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee that our salvation is secure and that we will enjoy that eternal inheritance. And so... Throughout the rest of the chapter, Osborne, he sort of parks in Romans chapter 8 and just walks through it 
you know, and, and makes all of these points. It's not hard to see why he would do that. There's arguably no passage in all of Scripture that is more comprehensive in its depictions of the ways in which God has blessed his people than Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is such a comforting passage of Scripture. Um, it's one that Christians can always turn to and find encouragement and the love that God shows for his children. It's just good. Uh, if you look just at the bookends, just look at the first verse and the last verse, and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. And I know you guys are familiar with these verses, but I mean, you, you gotta imagine you can't really beat the, the first and last verse and all that's in between and the passage that's within Romans chapter eight you know, in our Bible. Uh, the first verse in Romans chapter eight, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's good stuff. The last verse, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor, angel, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's, it's really good. And um, everything in between is just as good. And so that's where we're going to spend our time today, walking through Romans chapter 8. Um, the author particularly focuses on verses 10 and following, so we'll do that for the sake of time as well, uh, and we'll follow along the outline that he uses in his chapter. So first, we see the ways in which we are currently blessed by the Spirit. And what I want you to see as we go through this is that now, we could talk about present blessings and future blessings, but they're really not two different things. You know, all of the present blessings that we have from God, we can see have a future aspect as well. And then the future blessings we'll enjoy also have a present aspect as well. For example, you know, eternal life, uh, you know, um, enjoying the presence of God for eternity is a future blessing, but the hope that we have for that now itself is a blessing, right? So we, we enjoy even now blessings as we look forward to the, the future blessings that we have. But starting in verse uh, 10 and 11, as I mentioned in, in Romans chapter 8, we see that the Spirit gives life to the believer. Paul writes there, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we see here that the spirit grants us spiritual life. Right? We've been born again. We are made alive in Christ. And so that's a present blessing that we enjoy, but it also has a future component. Uh, that life will be eternal life. Eventually, that life will be one where we no longer have indwelling sin that we deal with. If we continue on in verse 13, we see that the Spirit enables us to kill our sin or to mortify sin. See, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So again, that's a present blessing that we enjoy 
the Spirit helps us as we seek to repent of the sin in our lives and to turn to God. In verse 15, we see that the presence of the Holy Spirit in believers testifies to their having been adopted into God's family as his children. We read there, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's the Spirit himself who shows us that we are part of God's family and who calls us or who, who draws us to call out to God as a loving father. So just from that short section, we've already seen that the Spirit blesses God's people by giving them life, bringing them into God's family as his adopted children, and enabling them to grow in sanctification, to mortify sin. And all of these, as I mentioned, have a corresponding blessing in the future. Uh, we have, as I mentioned, spiritual life now. We look forward to eternal life in the future. Um, having been adopted into God's family, we enjoy fellowship with him now, but yet we look forward to a future state when we will be united with our loving Father in a new home that he has made and kept for us. Being enabled to kill our sin, we eagerly seek to be made like Christ, our older brother, and to please God through obedience, striving for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But we know that in the future, we will be glorified and truly righteous before God. All of these current blessings we enjoy that Paul's described in these first few verses are made all the more precious because of the future blessings that they foreshadow. And as we continue to read through the rest of chapter 8, Paul begins to expand on those future blessings that we look forward to, that eschatological hope that we have as those who are in Christ, who possess the spirit of Christ. So as we go to verses 16 and 17, we see that Paul makes a noticeable shift in his focus from present to future. We read there, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Well, the first thing we see there is that we are heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. But heirs of what? What are we heirs of? If you see there right in the passage, we're heirs of God. He is our inheritance. And what, what better blessing is there? We are heirs of God. Uh, God himself is our inheritance. Uh, as David says in Psalm 16, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. God is our inheritance. Like that, that alone is good enough. And Paul keeps going, but that alone ought to give us great hope. It, it should make us eagerly anticipate that day that we get to be with him. And throughout scripture, we see God affirming this. Uh, how many times do we see him saying, I will be their God and they will be my people? He is our God, and we belong to him. 
what a blessing this is. We also see from these verses that we look forward to a future glory. We will someday be glorified with Christ. Now, there's so much in that that we can't even fully comprehend what that will entail. But we look forward to this glory, and it drives us to walk in accordance with God's law and to pursue this holiness because we know that we have this glory to look forward to. But the glory is not without present suffering. We see that already here in verse 17. Um, you know, Paul reminds us that there will be suffering involved. If we expect to be glorified with Christ, we also can expect to suffer as he suffered. What's particularly noteworthy is that Paul points out that one of the main sources of our present suffering is that longing that we feel as we anticipate the blessing of future glory with Christ. In fact, Paul even goes as far as to say that the creation itself experiences this longing as it waits for the redemption of the sons of God. As we continue reading in verses 18 to 22, we read, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So here in this passage in, in Romans chapter 8, even creation is personified. It's personified as being under the corruption of sin and waiting for that future recreation in the consummation, that recreation of the new heavens and new earth in which all things are made new and in which the corruption of sin is no more. Then after talking about the creation, Paul turns his focus back to the longing felt by believers. Here he reminds us that it is this longing that is prompted by the Holy Spirit within us. In verses 23 through 25, we read, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Here, as we discussed before, Paul refers to the Spirit as a first fruits, a present blessing that serves as a sign of even more abundant blessings to come. And because the Holy Spirit within us is a guarantee, a down payment, a surety, as Paul says in verse 24, it's in this hope that we're saved. The faith in which we were saved is a faith that includes the promised eternity of communion with our loving and merciful God. And oh, what a heavenly blessing awaits us. This is the same hope that sustained Paul through all of his sufferings in prison and being beaten and being stoned and having constant daily threats on his life. 
he was able to hold on to this hope and still find joy in Christ. This is the hope that empowered Stephen to boldly proclaim God's truth in the face of being stoned to death. And this is the same hope that the Spirit pours into our hearts, helping us in our weakness and helping us to commune with God even when we don't know how to approach him properly or what we ought to say. So this is what Paul says in verses 26 and 27. He says there, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What a blessing to know that even in our weakness, God reconciles us to himself through the intercession of his Spirit. And if we're so blessed by this gift of the Spirit and this communion with God in the midst of our present weakness, what glorious communion do we have to look forward to in the future when we are glorified with Christ? when that sinful weakness is removed. We've been lavished with blessings from God already, but Paul's point here is this is only the beginning. There is so much more to come. Now in verses 28 and 30, we get to that familiar passage that we seem to come to in almost every one of these studies. But there Paul reminds us of God's good blessings upon his elect and reminds us that God will bring to completion his work of salvation on their behalf, leading ultimately to their glorification. <coughs> there we read, starting in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is that future glory that we have to look forward to. And the work of salvation that God is already doing within us gives us the hope for that future glory. God will complete the work of salvation that he has started in his people. He will bring it to completion. He's promised that he will, and he's given us his Holy Spirit as a seal of that promise. In the next few verses, Paul puts forth a series of rhetorical questions to strengthen the Christian's assurance of God's unconquerable love for his children. As we read these questions, we find great comfort in the answers that are implied. I'll read through just the questions that he poses in the, the next few verses, but you can imagine what the answers are to these questions. In verse 31, Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? No one, right? No one can be against us. In verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The answer is he will. He will. Verse 33, <clears throat> who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. God justifies. Who could bring a charge against them? Who is to condemn? No one. No one can. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. No one can. These are the wonderful blessings that we get to hold on to because they're not just for here and now. They're forever. They will always be true. They can't be shaken. <clears throat> no one and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as Paul says. <clears throat> Whatever we face in this life, we still have hope because we know that nothing can separate us from Christ and from the love of God in Christ. And what's the source of this hope? We've talked about it a few times already, <clears throat> but it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us this hope. It's through the Holy Spirit that we hold on to this hope in the unfailing love of God. <clears throat> now, Paul has already, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got to take a drink here. Losing the, the voice. So, Paul has already pointed out that the Holy Spirit is our hope. If you go back to chapter 5 in Romans, in verses 3 through 5, we read, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Saints, we have within us a living hope, a hope that does not disappoint us or put us to shame. And we know, as Paul has said, if he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, he will also graciously give us all things, all blessings if we already possess this greatest blessing of all, having God himself as our God, we can expect to receive all other blessings at his gracious hand. Blessings of redemption, love, and future glory with Christ. These blessings are certain because the love of God is certain. We know that he will continue to care for us and bless us because he loves us and nothing can separate us from that love. The basis for the blessings we enjoy now and those that we look forward to in the future is God's love. The hope for these blessings is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. When you're struggling, when you're longing for that future age to come, remember these things. Pray for the Lord to give you strength and hope through the Spirit. Thank him for his steadfast love and faithfulness. Pray for the Spirit to guide you when you don't know how to pray as you ought. Look to Christ who loves you and gave himself up for you. And rest in the comforting words that Paul speaks here at the close of his chapter, where he says, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let us go ahead and pray together, and we'll close. Lord God, we thank you for your unfailing love for us. Lord God, we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit who blesses us with hope, who reminds us of the love you have for us, who leads us to call out to you as our loving Father and to trust and depend entirely upon Christ for this salvation that we enjoy. Lord God, we pray that we would rest in your promises, that we would seek to walk in obedience to you here and now, that we would seek to kill sin, that we would genuinely repent. Lord God, we pray that we would walk in faith and in hope of that coming time when sin will be no more, when every tear will be wiped away, Lord, and we will enjoy the greatest blessing of all. We will get to be with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.